I'm preaching through Romans, but we are going through Romans, and I'm pausing today. I love to preach. I love to preach. I don't ever claim to be a good one, but ain't nobody enjoys it more than me. How's that for good English? Um, And I preach typically... Uh, what's called um, expositionally, and you just go through Scripture. So I typically am books of the Bible, verse by verse, and and there's a selfish reason for that. First off, so I'll know where I'm going to be next week. I would hate to be this afternoon struggling to know what I'm going to preach next week. So uh, it helps me. But then also I believe that's the way to cover the the whole counsel of God. And so uh, sometimes you'll come to issues that need a little bit more attention. I believe Scripture will cover every topic eventually, and we'll get there. So this week is that, but it does deal with a mature topic. So if you weren't here last week, you would not know that. We sent out emails, hopefully, to our kids, families this week. The topic today is relevant, but it's of a mature nature. So if you're here with small kids, you may just want to be aware of that, and uh, we can help you with nursery if that is a need, because the topic today is, is homosexuality. That has moved to the forefront of our culture, and we have seen how attitudes have changed. Now, I'm going to say something that is not scientific. It is Jamie's opinion, but as I just observe, I I think those that are 30, 35, and older probably uh, have an opinion and approach this topic from a different place than those that are younger. Uh, When I talk to young people these days, this topic is not looked at the same as it was when I was their age. And so attitudes change. Society, I would say, has changed. I don't know that we are changing. I believe it has changed. And and that has come uh, through a variety of means. Entertainment has played a huge role in changing American ideas on this particular issue and so whether that's music and TV or movies but also it has come through politics it has come through the court system and so to the degree that this is now seen as normal and it's something that culture is telling the church you need to change you need to adjust you need to accept thus my desire to try to faithfully deal with this. We know laws change. You all are aware of this, but I'll remind you that it was June the 26th of 2015 that the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the rule that state bans on same-sex marriage and on recognizing same-sex marriages duly performed in other jurisdictions are unconstitutional under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. There was a day when the state of Alabama held that same-sex marriage was wrong, but other states did not hold that same view. So in 2015, our Supreme Court handed down the rule, and now there's universal acceptance of something like that. That was 2015. Uh, just this week, there have been some fascinating things happen in our country that relate to this issue. Uh, I'm not making a political statement, but the Democratic candidate for president, Beto O'Rourke, was asked directly this week, Do you believe 
that churches and charities and universities that do not affirm same-sex marriage should lose their tax-free status. And without reservation, he said yes. Now, I feel like I read, though I cannot uh, stake my life or reputation on my memory. I think I heard that was the first time that had been stated so clearly by a major candidate for U.S. president. To say that churches, which we are one, charities, which are Christian charities, regardless of what type of work they do, and all Christian universities, that if they no longer or will not affirm same-sex marriage, they would lose their tax-free status. That's a big change. Now, also the Supreme Court this week heard arguments from two cases related to these topics. You can look that up and see what both of them were, but let me just address one because it relates to the transgender issue. A funeral home in Michigan hired a gentleman to work in the funeral home. There was an understanding that men dress as men, women dress as women. He left on vacation one week as a male and returned identifying as a female with the intention of having sex reassignment surgery, but in the meantime, his intention was to dress as he preferred. This created conflict. And so this funeral home in Michigan fired him, and that case has made its way to the Supreme Court. Life after life after life is being affected. Our lives are being affected. Our families, our schools, our communities. So why would I address this topic? Well, for that very reason. I know and have friends who are homosexual. Some are in relationships. I know some that are not in a relationship but struggle with same-sex attraction. I know families that have been affected by this issue. You know families that have been affected by this issue. So today, I address this with fear and trembling. But I do so faithfully. And let me clarify. I do not fear what the Word says. I do not fear what I believe to be true, and I know, however, the heaviness of sin. And so the fear and the trembling comes that regardless of what some people may think, I really am a warm and fuzzy guy. And it hurts me when people hurt. And when you confront and address and discuss and call out sin, it can have a an effect on people in their lives. That is the fear and trembling. But truth is what matters to me. Now, there are those that would say I'm narrow-minded, judgmental, hurtful, perhaps even harmful. And there are those that see the church and identify the church in all of those ways. But I believe I have a responsibility, and I know I have a desire to honestly understand what God's Word says. And I have a little sticky note on one of my computer monitors that says, clearly explain, faithfully proclaim. I believe that's what my calling is. And so that is the effort I undertake today, to be faithful to God and His Word, because as you know, opinions change. Opinions change among politicians. We have seen politicians on the national scene who were for this, against this, for this, again. We see attitudes change among judges. We see how our culture has changed. And so I lovingly present what I'm convinced to be true. Now, some preachers can present truth, but they do so in a hurtful way. A friend of mine sent me a sermon on this topic and I could not listen to more than five minutes of that sermon because that 
pastor was preaching truth, but he was doing so in such, such a hurtful way. It just hurt my heart, and I could no longer listen to that. Some pastors avoid this issue and other controversial issues. Some pastors interpret Scripture based on what society wants. I was sent a text this week by my friend Lee Osmond who reminded me truth without love is brutal. Love without truth is permissiveness. So my prayer for all of us is that we trust the Lord enough to inform our attitudes, to shape our opinions, and to determine our response. I do not claim to have always handled this correctly. Now, there's a way that we respond to those who are clearly lost. There's a way we respond to those who claim to be Christians yet live in sin. I dealt with that previously in a sermon from 1 Corinthians. I'm sure you all remember it fondly. But I do want to lay out for you Scripture. Now, I have been reading a lot and studying a lot. And I would remind you that Scripture is my authority, it's our authority, it's my guide, it should be your guide. Some do go to culture that is harmful and hurtful. And sometimes you will hear various arguments from culture to the church. And you will hear culture say things like, why can't anyone get married? The argument would be that Scripture affirms love. We love one another. Therefore, two people who love one another and are faithful should be allowed to get married. The Bible doesn't forbid this. Some will argue that uh, y'all always go to that Sodom and Gomorrah thing. What they were punished for was not sexual sins. Some will say those are Old Testament issues. We should stay in the New Testament. Jesus never addressed any of this. Grace, love, peace. Some will say, surprisingly, but some will say, the kind of homosexuality forbidden in Scripture is the bad kind. And some will say that what Scripture forbids is what was common in the first century when older men would abuse young boys, when slave owners would abuse their slaves. But what we are facing today is a much more advanced, mature, same-sex relationship. Some would say the church just hates LGBTQ people. Those and other arguments have and are made on a regular basis. So I do want to get to Scripture. But before we do that, I I want to say something that I hope you'll hear. The church should never hate anyone. That is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the belief and the understanding and the proclamation that God has created everyone and as such everyone has value and worth and is cherished and respected. So every person should be loved and respected. And I pray that is the case because Jesus and hate simply do not go together. But we speak not of persons but of sins. Now here's the dilemma. This particular sin is no longer identified as a sin. People are beginning to identify as that particular sin. And that complicates what could be honest and helpful conversations. Our problem really 
is that you and I are rather comfy with some sins and very uncomfortable with other sins. We all like to consider ourselves okay. My sin is not the problem. Their sin is the problem. And I can illustrate this. I want y'all to imagine. Now, this is a stretch, but y'all can do it if you try. Imagine me driving 80 miles an hour on Interstate 65. I know that would boggle the mind. That is in excess of our stated laws. But would you imagine me, your pastor, driving along at 80, and I'm fine with that. But the minute somebody passes me doing 81... They need a ticket. Are y'all understanding how this works? We're comfy with our sins. It's their sins that are brought. And Jesus knew this was a struggle that we would have because he addressed, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. Worry about the plank that's in your own eye. So here's the issue with this sin. When you consider the sin lists in Scripture... We have our favorite sins to preach against, to rail against, to condemn. And we have our favorite sins to accept. We often fail acknowledging sin is sin is sin is sin. And all sin is ugly to God. The Jewish rabbi said there were 613 laws in the Torah. 365 of them, one for every day of the year, were sins that we hear, thou shalt not. Jesus preached against a number of things. And when you look at Jesus preaching, you will find that he preached against murder and adultery and divorce, and the breaking of oaths, but he also preached against our worrying, and he preached against us judging others. Paul wrote about sexual immorality in broad terms, but he also listed in his sin list hatred and jealousy and selfish ambition and drunkenness and thieves and slanderers and gossipers. Now, some will look on gossip much more favorably than they will homosexuality. That's why in the book of Romans, Paul goes out of his way to make the point that we are all sinners. And we all deserve punishment. We're all deserving of hell. None of us deserve the grace of God. That's what makes the gospel so glorious that any of us can be saved from any of our sins. We're just a bit more comfortable with our sin. And so Romans calls homosexuality unnatural. And so by way of explanation, let me just say that for those of us that don't struggle with that sin, have never struggled with that sin, it has no appeal to us as other sins do. It has become easy to hold that sin in a separate category, but it doesn't belong there. Sin is sin is sin. We're all loved by the Lord. So to Scripture... I'll not answer every question. I'll not cover every topic. I'll not be able to give you a defense for every argument you'll ever hear. But before you leave today, I want you to hear relevant scripture to the topic. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we begin. The creation story is the foundation of everything. And it is certainly the foundation for this particular issue. Genesis chapter 1 
Beginning at verse 27, the Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then we go to Genesis 2. Beginning at verse 22, and the Bible says, In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the foundation. Now, some would argue today that what Scripture describes in Genesis is a committed covenant relationship. And there is a crowd that would argue any two people should be allowed to be in a covenant marriage, whether that person is Male and male, female and female. And they try to argue that Genesis actually fits in a committed homosexual relationship. But that's not the case. Because in creation, man and woman are similar, but they are different. They are close, but they are distinct. The woman, we know, was not an animal. That's who Adam had been dealing with for so long. He had named all of them, and so then along comes woman. She was like him in that she was human, but very different in that she was not a man. She was a woman. And let me just gently remind you that that distinction especially is on a slippery slope in our culture. Some of the cases that are before the courts today deal with this issue. In our culture, we are on the verge of potentially losing the distinction of the sexes. So we need to be aware of this. This is why, and I mean this respectfully, and I don't mean this argumentatively, but by way of explanation, that's why some men who identify as women are being permitted to compete in female sports. And they are dominating those sports. And you say, well, that's not an issue. Friend, I want to tell you, that's an issue. And we must deal with this with love and with respect. But I'm, I'm telling you, you need to be cautious. Because there are some, even in the church, who would say, I can't believe the preacher's even talking about this. We need to love and accept and bless. And thank goodness we're finally legalizing. Let me tell you. If you believe that way and you are a lady, you are on the verge of losing that distinction in our culture. And it will play into every aspect of our lives. We need to be aware, but I'm going to deal with that in my next sermon. Now, the whole concept of one flesh. Some people would say that that is not limited to a sexual and biological understanding. And I would say that I would agree with that. There's more to the one flesh than just the physical. It's emotional, it's spiritual, but having said that, let me tell you, it doesn't mean anything less than the physical. 
And by that I mean this is very important that we remember. The creation account describes two who are different, distinct from the animals, but different sexes, and it describes them becoming one. Why? Because only two people of opposite sex can procreate. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply. It remains to this day biologically impossible for same-sex couples to reproduce. Now, there are times when various factors preclude couples of opposite sex to have children. This does not make them less in any way, shape, or fashion. But it does not negate the expectation that people will continue to be born. And the only way that will happen is for males and females to multiply. And for those who say Jesus never addressed this, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. We'll not look at it now. You can jot that down. Jesus addresses this passion passage and gives affirmation to the concept that marriage is between a woman and a man. Paul even uses the concepts from Genesis 1 and Ephesians chapter 5 when he highlights that marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the church. This is foundational. We move from Genesis 1 though to Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We were introduced to that last week. I'll just give you all the context this week with a few comments. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. He encouraged them. He urged them because he knew his society. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounding the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, drew near to break the door down. But the men, the guests, the angels who had come, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now the reason I bring this passage to your attention today is because there are people who will say that what is described in that passage is not homosexual activity. There are some who say the word to know can mean something less than sexual activity and that also is true. But in this context, it is abundantly clear that they did not have the idea of sitting down together having coffee. It says, all the men of the city, young and old, it describes a growing 
level of violence as they sought to have access to the men who were in the house. The, the thing that makes it uh, even more clear is the fact that Lot offered his daughters who, he says, have not known men. They were virgins. He offered them to these men and they refused because they wanted to know the men that were in the house. It is unlikely that other things were in mind because of those reasons. And when you get to the New Testament, Jude, verse 7, clarifies it by saying, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the sounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the New Testament makes comments to the Old Testament story. And here is the difficult reality for some but homosexual activity has resulted in God's judgment because God takes sexual sin very seriously move quickly with me to Leviticus Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20 two verses to look at today Leviticus 18:22 says you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now I give you those two verses. They're just examples taken out of the law that God gave to his children Israel because he wanted his people to be holy as he is holy. That's the New Testament expectation for you and for me, that we would be holy as God is holy. But here's the thing. In the law, there were a number of sexual sins that were forbidden. It included adultery, homosexuality, incest, and bestiality. Now, I go here to tell you that this is not to be unkind. It's not to be unseeming in any fashion. But it is to say that we've seen the attitudes change on some of these. Long gone are the days when adultery was shamed publicly. Now we're living in a day where homosexuality is accepted. And many people criticize preachers like me from even raising this issue. But I tell you, if we allow this continual decline, will our attitudes change on these other things? And some will say, well, that will never happen. Well, there was a day when people said homosexuality would never be Accepted. And so what is next? Would incest then be acceptable? Would bestiality then be acceptable? We have seen the change, not in God's word, but in our attitudes. So it's a slippery slope. Romans chapter 1 is the passage that many people often will go to, and we looked at that last week. Romans chapter 1, some would say, was a criticism of excessive sexual activity. Others would say that what Paul was preaching against was pedastry, where an older man would abuse a younger boy, where slave owners would abuse their slaves. But the argument made in Scripture in Romans chapter 1 is very clear, and it is that homosexual activity is wrong, and that is the passage where it is called unnatural. It was not a condemnation of a specific person. It was not a condemnation of the amount of sexual activity. It was not 
the condemnation of anything other than the activity of homosexuality. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, I've preached this before. I'm sure it's fresh on your minds. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You've heard this sin list before. I bring it to your attention so that we would not overlook what he said. Do not be deceived. As culture changes, as laws change, as attitude changes, we should not be deceived. And regardless of the fact that some churches are changing their stance on this topic, regardless of whether or not, and many of us do, know people who are lovely and fun to be with and upstanding and kind and moral people, we can't be deceived. Homosexuality is an activity considered to be wrong. Let me take you finally to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, beginning at verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This passage, like 1 Corinthians, uses broad terms. And the English translations typically say men who practice homosexuality. Some of that goes back to the Leviticus passage, but it's broad terms in the English. But what it is saying is that all forms of homosexual activity is condemned. But would you also notice with me that in this list is also liars who are lumped together with murderers and homosexuals. Here is the bottom line on scripture in this topic. Nowhere in the Bible is homosexuality affirmed. Scripture never affirms homosexuality. So why, again, would I even come to this point and bring it up. I think it's important for us to know what Scripture says. I hope that will help us get to the place where we know what we believe. Because as society continues to change, we've got to know how to live our faith in a culture that is rapidly changing. Now let me say this and say it lovingly and gently for everyone to hear. Homosexuality is a genuine concern. There are people that struggle with this particular sin. They're my friends and your friends, co-workers, classmates, family members that struggle with this sin. This whole issue is gaining more attention with the transgender issues. And I want to say to you, those individuals struggle. The issues are real. The treatment of this topic is serious on a 
national level with the media, the legal, and the political world. And that's the world in which you and I are called to live, but not just live. We are called to love, to share our faith, to live out our faith in this changing culture. How? Well, I'll just tell you that's my next sermon. But I'll also affirm for you we've not always gotten things right. And we probably deserve, let me rephrase that, we deserve some criticism that we receive. There are people who look at us and say, well, why don't you preach against gluttony? And I'd say, because I'm fat and I like to eat. Because that's my sin. And that's been the issue. We've been comfortable with our sin while condemning their sin. God help us. There was a day when churches in this state, perhaps even in this community, affirmed slavery. There was a day when the Christian churches of the South affirmed discrimination. Friend, I want to tell you, we haven't always gotten it right. But I want to end on a little bit more hopeful note. Go back to the 1 Corinthians passage with me in verse 6. Excuse me, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. We just read this, so if you feel like you've heard it before, it's because you've heard it before. Do you not know, he said to that church, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, I just want to pause right there. He uses a broad term, but he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What that word tells me is that the church in Corinth was like the church in Arab today. It's just filled of a bunch of former sinners. There's an interesting list there because, again, all of the sexually immoral and homosexuality is coupled there with thieves. With those who are greedy, with those who are drunkards, with those who are revilers, those who are swindlers, all of those. And such were some of you. Such was I. So I think it's important that we remember sin is sin is sin and all sin is ugly to God. But there's no sin greater than the grace of God. And that's the message of hope we offer to this world. With this sin and any sin, would you pray together with me? Today, Lord, we're thankful for your grace, which is all sufficient. And I pray that you would make clear to all of us how serious, hurtful, and ugly sin is. Lord, I pray you would also give us a clear understanding of your grace and mercy and love. Help us to know how to handle the issue of sin, specifically the issue of homosexuality, and how we offer the love that you extend. 
God, I pray you'd give us a heart of compassion, a heart of love, a heart of concern. And Father, you'd find us faithful, sharing the glorious gospel that's available to everyone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.